Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European Podcast. My name is Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of The New European, but I'm going to stop acting like some kind of star. With me today are two New European colleagues. There's Eleanor Longman-Rood, who's moving on up and nothing can stop her. Hello, Ellie. Hi, Steve. And there's Matt Withers, who later on uh, will be taking a sip or two from the Devil's Cup because it's his birthday. Hello, Matt Withers. Hello there. Uh, a big birthday for you, Matt? Yep, it's the big four free today. Excellent news. Excellent. Uh, Coming up on the New European podcast, Steve Richards from the Rock and Roll Politics podcast discusses Liz Truss, who, of course, has inspired uh, my fit of M people uh, lyrical madness with her intro music at the Conservative Party conference, which all seemed to go very well. M people uh, had a percussionist called Shovel. Uh, in their ranks, and Liz Truss needs a shovel uh, now to clear up the huge pile of shit that she and her Chancellor have created uh, over the last fortnight. Uh, After Steve Richards, we'll be putting more malignant ministers, bogus backbenchers, poisonous pundits into the Hall of Shame. Before all that, if you enjoy what we do at the New European, and frankly, who wouldn't, there is really no better way to support us than by subscribing. To make that decision easier for you, here's a fantastic offer for podcast listeners. New subscribers can get a year's digital subscription to the New European for just £1 a week, or you can buy a year's subscription to our print and digital package for £2 a week. With that, you get unlimited access to our archive plus our award-winning newspaper delivered to your door every week for a year to take advantage of this offer and join our growing community of avid readers please subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash tne podcast so welcome back to the podcast welcome back to ellie and matt Uh, In a second, we'll be discussing some of your work for the New European, what you've been up to this week. First, of course, Liz Truss did walk on stage to Moving On Up by M People uh, before her conference speech. Uh, Other hits of 1993 she could have walked on to, All Apologies by uh, Nirvana, Regret by New Order and Insane in the Brain by Cypress Hill. Uh, any thoughts, uh, Ellie, on uh, songs from any era that Liz Truss could have walked on to? I was actually talking to to my housemate about this last night, and it's funny because we both said it's like one of those things where someone says, oh, what's your favourite film? And you not only forget every film you've ever watched, but every film that's ever been made, ever. Um, but to stick with my Gen Zer loyalties, you said any era, we have Zara Larson's Ruin My Life, where the con- where the chorus literally goes, I want you to ruin my life, ruin my life, ruin my life. Uh, naturally, there's another Liz. There's Liz O with Truth Hurts. And Ooh. in loving memory of the pound and the economy, there's Miley Cyrus's Wrecking Ball. Yes, Miley I've seen quite a few memes of Liz Truss as Miley Cyrus. If only Liz Truss could blame it on the juice. If, if she, only she was honest enough to say... Uh, it's all to do with the uh, juice. Um, Matt Withers, what song would you have uh, played for Liz Truss as she walks on stage? Well, with the caveat that um, conservative politicians should never come on to any recorded song because it's just a matter of time till the artist tweets to disassociate themselves <laughs> from uh, 
from their policies. I was thinking perhaps Basket Case by Green Day, as that Ooh. is what the Conservative Party has become. Uh, if you wanted to look at their attitude to the economy, you could have Sabotage by the Beastie Boys. Um, an obvious one would be Should I Stay or Should I Go by The Clash, or I'm thinking perhaps Trouble by Shampoo, because it's a great song. <laughs> Uh-oh, we're in trouble. Uh, yes, well... Who knows? I mean, at least it wasn't Dancing Queen and at least all the letters on the board uh, stayed on the board. Um, Ellie, before uh, we hear from uh, Steve Richards, who I nearly called Keith Richards, that would be an interesting politics (laughs) podcast, I think. Uh, That would be rock and roll politics. Um, This week in the New European, your streaming review is is a Spanish dramedy. It's called The Girls at the Back. And and, and this really connected with you. I I was... you know, it's a, it's a really good uh, review again and um, one that I think people will really enjoy. I really enjoyed reading it. So why did it connect with you so much? Yeah. Um, so so to give a bit of context and forgive my pronunciation here, but it's created by uh, Daniel Sanchez Alvarello. And the series is, as you say, it's a dramedy about five 30-year-old friends. Uh, they gained their nickname, which is also the series title, Um, When a teacher at school assigned seats alphabetically and lo and behold, the girls all had surnames beginning with letters from the end of the alphabet. So we're seated together at the back, hence the girls at the back. Now you skip forward to present day and one of them has cancer. So they devise this trip from leaving behind their lives in Madrid to go to sunny Cadiz. Again, please forgive my pronunciation um, to distract from this sort of ongoing reality and what the treatment will mean, not just for the person who's diagnosed, but what that's going to mean for the friendship dynamics and the life of the five girls going forward. But there is such a stroke of genius with the script writing, because as a watcher, you don't know, you don't ever find out until the very, very end, which one has cancer. Um, And this essentially is one of the trip's two rules, that they don't talk about the cancer. They don't even refer to it using the word. They just say, we don't talk about why we're here. Um, this is made significantly harder by the fact that the opening minutes of the show in the very first episode, we see sort of a compilation of, of shots where all five of them are shaving their heads in solidarity, which is a it's a scene very central to any film that, you know, toys with the cancer canon. Um, and then the second rule is that each day they must do sort of a bucket list style challenge, something that they've always wanted to do, but have never had the courage to. And that's not a hugely again not a hugely novel um trope in this sort of film and that and when they do these things it ranges from things like hook up with a chick to quote them uh to do drugs together to commit a crime um and I won't spoil the ending but the way it's chosen and the why these things are chosen is is very brilliantly done um so yeah so that's the girls at the back and it resonated me with me for one simple reason that my mum was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2011. Um, and I think that's actually how I opened the piece, but saying, you know, that as a teenager, I was 13 when she was diagnosed and I went through, you know, show after show, I devoured dramatizations of cancer, but not even just the ones about cancer directly. So you have the obvious ones like The Fault in Our Stars, 50-50, My Sister's Keeper, but also episodes of shows that aren't explicitly about the disease like the bold type sex in the city Grey's anatomy but sort of toy with it in smaller ways and each time I sort of went looking for answers as a 13 year old does and when you're very curious about life and what's going on and left each one more and more conflicted and confused because some bits were very accurate and some bits very very much weren't um sex in the city looking at you where they compare a chemotherapy lounge to a vacation in Miami which is just almost the way it's written is almost laughable if not vastly offensive and then this one just the girls at the back just completely changes the game at least it does for me um it managed to have this plot that's about cancer and has nothing to do with cancer simultaneously um obviously no show is perfect so one thing that was running through my head watching it is that is it really realistic to send you know five girls off on a trip it's a very emotional time they're obviously drinking. Then there's the episode where there's a lot of drugs going on. Would you really ex- not expect them to suddenly blurt it out in a sort of mm. drunken, high emotional rant? But then to counteract that, occasionally sometimes they do, but they do it in a way that doesn't completely let the cat out of the bag for the watcher. 
And even if they didn't, sometimes it's just nice when you're watching something to give into it and accept that that's the premise the directors had in mind. Um, and you do eventually, in literally the last four or five minutes, find out which of the girls is is not very well. And I won't obviously won't say how it's done, but the way that ending is also done is just exquisite. Yeah, and it's not, I mean, it, it sounds like it, I mean, it's a show with a gimmick, isn't it? But it doesn't sound like a gimmicky show. Mm. Um, I, I, I've avoided sort of cancer dramas, I think, to to cheapen uh, cheapen it. Just, I mean, because of the, the heavy schmaltz factor that, you know, I think it's a love story, I think, is is one that would be, will be familiar to people of, of my vintage and then terms of endearment. I think that was probably the last, the last one that I watched. In lockdown, now I did, I watched two films about people with cancer that I just thought were superb: uh, Baby Teeth, uh, which is an Australian film, and Paddleton, which is a, an American film. And you know that they're, they're, as you say, they're not directly about a person with cancer. But Baby Teeth is a lot of it is about the the reaction of, of the, how broken the parents are of a young woman with with cancer uh Paddleton is about the you know the friendship between the awkward friendship uh between men when they actually have to discuss serious things is it does that sound similar to those I don't know if you've watched either of those we, we seem to do we have new ways of talking and making art about cancer now do you think yeah, so I do have to hold up my hands and say that I've actually missed these, but they will certainly be going on my on my watch list now. But I do think, you know, as as with any almost genre and and trope, that we have found new ways to talk about it and and to write it into scripts. I'd say the girls at the back. It's it's the least obviously. You know, you sort of talked about the romance genre and making things gimmicky. In that sense, it's the least obviously emotive one that I've seen for a while um aside from not directly mentioning the cancer and finding a way around it it's very dry in some places and very very funny um i know 5050 was one of the others of this sort of area that tried to play with cancer and cancer and humor but for me just went a little bit too dark and went too far the other way um but in this one there's a scene for example where the girls are on the beach and they're drunkenly sort of for some reason or other, it's never hugely explained, but they're drunkenly pretending to be seals um, while the other ladies around them are sort of demurely sunbathing and another where very early on where they sort of dryly announced the flaw in their plan of not mentioning cancer. And one of the girls said, well, if we didn't want to talk about it, why have we all shaved our heads? Like everyone is looking at us thinking the exact same thing. Um, but no, so it's very dry and, and very amusing, but it's played with humour in a way that I haven't seen done before. And then again, it just resonated with me because it reminded me of times, you know, with my mum and in the context of in the context of things like being in the hospital or context of the disease, there are moments that are genuinely funny. So you do laugh despite what's going on. And, you know, for example, one that we keep talking about at home is one where my mum was basically recovering in hospital from reconstructive surgery and she could not stay awake. Um, but this wasn't anything to do with the anesthesia. Essentially, she was having a reaction to the morphine, which was just causing this extreme fatigue. So I needed to change it. Now, to talk through all of this with her arrives a very impressive and very busy pain specialist who come came up all the way from the other side of the hospital to her bed to, you know, sit with her and whatnot. And as he was talking and, you know, he was doing his job, he was being excellent. She could not stay awake during what he was saying. Um, and we sort of joke with her that, you know, oh, was he boring you? Because he sort of, she was nodding and nodding and nope, she's gone again. Okay. And then she'd wake up being like, no, I was listening, I was listening, I was listening. nope, gone. Um, and it always makes us giggle. And then another time, like before the reconstruction, you know, as you leave your, you leave the house, you go, okay, phone, keys, purse, done. That, in our house, that turned into right, keys, purse, phone, boob, with a tap to the right-hand side of her chest to make sure she had a little cushion that went into her bra before the surgery. And it's just things like that that do make you giggle. And yeah, okay, they're a bit dry because it's essentially, you know, bits of humour that wouldn't be in your life if cancer wasn't in your life. But if you don't laugh at them, then yeah. honestly, why not? Um, so yeah, I, I think it plays with humour in a new way. And aside from the cancer, but the way they're able to admit, admit it is almost just like a genius bit of script writing where it's a show about cancer, but that just completely negates it but then lets it in as well. It's really, really clever. 
Uh, Matt Withers, clearly you won't be watching this because you don't watch any anything on TV at all because you you you're a reader. Um, did you have your your name begins with a W though? Your surname. Did you have to sit at the back at school? No, that's not how it works. <laughs> my school. Maybe that's just the uh, maybe, maybe that's just a Spanish, the Spanish thing. thing. Yeah. Um, I, I just wondered on this one on a com- completely different tangent, Ellie. I'm um, reading your review. I, I don't think you mentioned the fact that it was in in Spanish, and I wondered if. As our token young person and spokesperson for your entire generation, um, mm. I wondered if for um, the younger generation now, TV and film being in a different language and being subtitled is such a non-issue that it's not even um, worthy of mention. I, I enjoy watching non, non-English language um film but I do know other people who can't get over what I think the the Korean director um Bong Joon-ho once described as the the one foot wall of of uh, of subtitles do you think your generation is is over that now well as you say speaking for all of you know gen z <laughs> slash millennials that that walk the country and the <laughs> earth um I don't know that's a very good question actually I didn't I have to admit I for me personally I didn't hugely notice it as an issue when watching it and similar um I think a couple of months ago there's another Spanish series called Intimacy which is about sort of Spanish politician and the issue of revenge porn and things like that and that was another one that was dubbed and I just don't for me I didn't notice it and it didn't sort of I know almost get in the way or didn't make me not want to watch it um thinking off the top of my head would any of my closest friends watch things like that I think it's more of the issue of the the issues it deals with on the series so would the topic interest them you know and would so would my friends want to sit and watch a, a drama about five friends dealing with you know disease and female friendship and things like that probably um and it's almost then where we've gotten so well at you know bridging language barriers and things like that I'm in no way a you know in that aspect a tech or a film expert but I do think there's an argument to be made that not that it's a non-issue but that it, I don't know the accessibility is definitely definitely increased. So, do you go dubbed? Did you say, or do you go subtitles? I did the I did the dubbed one. Um, I don't know if that's the wrong one or not. Matt is Matt our TV expert. Is that the wrong one? Well, he's a, he doesn't watch any. He I I, watch I, any. To, I I would always watch um, subtitle. I, I did watch um, Squid Game on Netflix and watch that subtitled, and I did catch a bit of the dubbed version. And for me. Um, it lost a lot. Uh, I think it. I think that needed to be seen in in Korean with subtitles. But um, I, I I don't know. It's different strokes for different folks, isn't it? I've, I mean, I always I always go subtitles, and I do I've, I do find as somebody who is uh, you know as also is part of Gen Z or whatever. Um, uh, I don't think I really am part of Gen Z, but I certainly look at my phone as much as anyone from Gen Z, and I I, I do find. Uh, a subtitle film very enjoyable uh, just just for that just for, just for the fact that it's two hours when you can't look at your phone um matt this week uh super villain well bond villain really uh, elon, elon musk uh, bond villain and putin apologist elon musk his, his bid for twitter is is he's back isn't it and you wrote about elon musk and twitter for us earlier this year uh, what could possibly go wrong if elon musk does buy well, twitter uh, uh, absolutely yeah i did i wrote i wrote about this back in in may i've, I've it's, it's still available um as, as is all all our, our, uh, our content on the on the website and I've, I've just gone back to it in the past couple of days because i i did write about twitter but not so much actually about elon musk it, it was obviously it came out of his um his yes. attempted takeover which kind of went away and has now come back or has been forced back on him. But what I was writing about was not whether it would tilt away from advertising to subscription and not what everybody else was talking about, which is will Donald Trump be allowed back? But I was asking what exactly is Twitter, which I thought was quite an interesting question because until 2009, Twitter's homepage, the one you'd see visiting their site while not logged in, displayed its I suppose, mission statement, which was Twitter is a service for friends, family and co-workers to communicate and stay connected through the exchange of quick, frequent answers to one simple question. What are you doing? And now its homepage doesn't have any attempt at self-definition. And other people have been 
having to intervene to kind of describe what it is. A lot of newspapers until re relatively recently um, prefixed it with the, the micro blogging site. I, I suspect the Daily Telegraph still does for its its readers. And whereas, you know, kind of Facebook is where dimly remembered schoolmates post pictures of their children and Instagram is where good looking young people illustrate, you know, their sanitized version of their life to wangle a boohoo deal. Uh, Twitter, it's difficult to know what it is beyond the one that journalists use to speak to other journalists and therefore, you know, cover it with disproportionate reverence. Um, and I spoke to a, a, a number of people working in, in um, social media for the piece and nobody could really explain to me if you were talking to someone who'd never seen um, Twitter being used, exactly what it is, or indeed if it didn't exist, why you would need to create it. Um, I spoke to one guy, Michael Baggs from the, the Social Element, a, a marketing agency, and he said, well, it's pinged about. If you go to the App Store, it's sometimes been on the social media and it's sometimes been on the news and it moves around relatively infrequently, but every time it does, some people raise an eyebrow. Um, and that seems to be looking at comments that Elon Musk has made in the past couple of days, something that he's going to have to wrestle with. Yes, I mean, he, he, he seems to want to, some radical change to Twitter, doesn't he, Elon Musk? Uh, not just letting Donald Trump back in and, and, uh, and other people who uh, say unpleasant things. What what are his kind of ideas? I mean, I saw this, I saw this tweet which from him, which I didn't really understand, which said buying Twitter is an accelerant to creating X, the everything app. What what on earth does that mean? Well, X is um a letter that he's got a lot of history with. His first big success in business was an online bank uh, called X.com and uh, one Tesla model is is the X, and SpaceX is obviously his company. Now, the everything app is the interesting thing, and this would appear to be an attempt to imitate the, the so-called super apps that are prevalent in Asia, such as uh, WeChat. So WeChat is the big one in, in China. It's got 1.3 billion users, and it enables them to communicate, send payments, book taxis, read news, uh, watch entertainment. It does this by enabling developers to create mini apps that attach to the main service. But basically, um, these apps allow you to do everything you can do online without ever leaving their platform. And this seems to be what he wants from, from Twitter um, to, to, to make it something that you, you basically will never have to leave it to do everything that you currently do with your phone. But in, in, indeed, in, in China, WeChat is how the state pandemic tracking system works. It notes what health code a user has been given, and that yeah. determines where they can go and whether they can take public transport and enter public venues. Now, some people have expressed skepticism about this. I've just been reading some comments from somebody called Matt Navarra, who's a, a social media consultant. He says the way that people use social media is distinctly different in Asia. Uh, the payment systems and retailers and ride apps were integrated some time ago. It's a very culturally different sort of situation. And to think we'll just recreate those apps here, he says, is very, very naive. And it, and it's absolutely true um, because, firstly, people are used to having the different apps on their phones. You know, to encourage people to um, watch their TV within Twitter rather than going to Netflix or or, or Apple TV Plus, or or to use it to to get their taxis rather than going to Uber is going to be a big cultural change. And of course, Twitter's tried this kind of thing a little bit before. It's tried to roll new services in. It's got Twitter Spaces, the um, the kind of Again, it's difficult to describe someone's kind of live podcast app, but it's very little used outside of some very niche areas. And it's tried to be in a broadcast before. You you may know Steve as an NFL fan. They did in, in the um in the States for a while. They actually bought the rights to stream mm. NFL games directly through Twitch, and it just didn't work for them. And they've no. gone back to the model now of just allowing um broadcasters to host things themselves through Twitter. So if he wants to do this and, and build this this super app, which uh, he said he, he wants to um, increase the number of users from 217 million to, to 931 million by 2028, he's not just going to have to technically change Twitter completely. He's going to have to completely change the way that people interact with their phones. Um, and that's a big ask. Yeah, and I just wonder why he needs Twitter to do it. You know, why why not just want to just start with with the, whatever the the everything app is X, the everything app. 
Yeah, that's that's an interesting one because um, he's proven he can do it. He has he's built the world's most valuable car company from from scratch, um, whereas previously somebody with um, with the ambition to do that would have started by investing in an established um, mark. Um, I think much as you can try and get inside the mind of Elon Musk, um, I think it's probably a bit of in this um, arena he probably thinks it does that there are so many established brands he needs to have one and another might be that he simply boxed himself in you know it's it's not clear that he ever wanted twitter to begin with um and indeed he he very much tried to to back out of this deal and it's only the fact that he was facing some um enormously expensive litigation um that he's he's come back to it now and i wonder if there is an element that He's talked himself into this into this deal now, and he's going to have to do something with it. Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, Ellie, uh, uh, Elon Musk, is, are you a fan of Elon Musk? I think he's a very strange individual, I have to say. Um, what was it that you always talk about, the, there being a very fine line between, I don't know, between genius and something on the other side of, on the other side of um, genius? And didn't he name his child or his son a very, very strange... X CP three PO something like that. Yes, I think so. He's got two, hasn't he? R two D two is the other one. Mm, um, that's right. They're twins, I think, if I remember they're, rightly. They're with Grimes, uh, I, I believe, whose work I am familiar with. But I also see that Grimes has now got elf ears. She's had. She seems to have had plastic surgery to have elf ears, which uh, I don't know about that. I mean, surely that would be. Is, is that? Is it? Do iPods work with elf ears? I don't really know. Um, it's yes. a sentence I've never heard passed before. <laughs> I don't know. Um, do you, I mean, are you a big Twitter user, Ellie? I mean, I have an account, obviously. And Matt, it's interesting you saying like it's almost like journal Twitter or journalist Twitter. It's what I was always taught is that when I was asking people, you know, how, years ago, like, how do you get into it? And they said, oh, have you got a Twitter account? Like, no, like, oh, get one and connect with people and whatnot. But I have this love-hate relationship with Twitter where I just, it, I don't know, it moves so quickly and I just think some 80% of the things you see on there and read on there are quite um, out there and strange. But then and it almost got me thinking, and I don't know what you what you would say to this, Matt, but there seems to be like a cycle with social media. If you think, you know, I don't know, start in the early days, you had things, I don't know, like MSN or whatever, and then we went to... Facebook and then it all became about Instagram and then Twitter and Twitter's now getting this huge you know what rebanding or whatever and things like Snapchat and it seems to be like the rise and fall of different apps and which ones are popular of the day and I suppose I don't know the question I'm asking is can we ever have I don't know what what would be next after Twitter and is there I don't know would there ever then be a, a complete demise of Twitter and what would that I don't know can Twitter just keep surviving on and keep evolving yeah, it's very it's very interesting. You can see that um, Meta, um, Facebook in in old money is is really struggling with this at, at the moment as well. It, it, and it's almost entirely chairing up its its business model to try to make Facebook and Instagram more like TikTok because that is the the the, the flavor of, of of the moment, and um, that's causing a lot of uh, unhappiness amongst particularly Instagram users because they are increasingly seeing content generated by algorithm as opposed to what they wanted, which is a series of pictures posted by their friends, preferably in chronological order. Um, but Facebook have decided that um, TikTok is the way forward, that it's going to be about algorithm, it's going to be about video. Now, in two years' time, when the next thing comes along, does everybody completely tear up their, their business model? Again, it's... Um, it's it's a real kind of wild west um, social media. You have to remember it. It's still a, a very very young medium that's still trying to figure out it, its way in in the world, particularly in terms of um, how it, it it functions economically. Um, I think Twitter's possibly got the most difficult problem in this. Um, and you, you you know you're right. It, there is a there is an issue that probably us journalists talk about Twitter more than it actually has an impact. In fact, if you, if you go on political Twitter, you'd think that Jeremy Corbyn was now in his, you know, third term in office as prime minister <laughs> with a whopping majority. It, it's not very indicative of, of the wider wider world. Um, but yeah, it's everybody, uh, everybody is struggling because the world of social media changes so rapidly that 
businesses of this size, which uh, would ordinarily be looking five, 10, 15 years um, into the future, they're looking five to 15 months into the future. It's very, uh, it's, it's very, it's interest, very interesting, isn't it? Um, and I've, here's something that I've just discovered on Twitter and, and it says, uh, it says Grimes and Elon Musk met uh, after finding out that on the on Twitter, they both came up with the same pun relating to Rococo and the thought experiment Roco's Basilisk. Which is almost exactly how I met my partner as well. So it's a it's modern a, love story. That's that must have been one heck yes, of a best man speech. Absolutely, yes, that's right. Uh, now we will turn to this week's interview. And joining us now from the Rock and Roll Politics podcast, which will return with a live show at King's Place in King's Cross uh, on Wednesday, October 26th, it's Steve Richards. Steve, thank you for joining us. Uh, in issue 311 of the New European, you have written about Liz Truss and the worst starts made by British Prime Ministers. First, though, I wanted to ask you, Steve Richards, are you part of this anti-growth coalition? And if so, where do you meet? What are the fees? Is there some kind of ban? <laughs> I tick virtually every box in the anti-growth coalition. I live in North London. I oh. do a podcast. Quite often go into Broadcasting House at the yes. BBC. Um, by taxi or and and occasionally by taxi although you know sometimes i cycle in and that doesn't add to any growth um so this is i I feel so sinful that is that by the way is really interesting because the framing of growth versus anti-growth she included within that anti-growth coalition uh more than half the electorate and that is probably not a wise framing um, if you think about it, the SNP, those who back remain, you know, trade unionists, podcasters. I, I mean, when you add them all up, she's already saying um, there's a majority of people against her idea of growth. Anyway, it, it, it's one of many bizarre things whirling around at the moment. Well, I mean, it is a it is a, a big straw man, isn't it? I mean, it's a, an enormous straw man, as you say, of, of yeah. almost half the country. But, you know, Boris Johnson didn't do... <laughs> Too bad running against a mysterious elite who was somehow holding Britain back, you know? Yeah, that is, of course, the device um, that she's trying to copy. And she's got a lot of those hardline Brexiteers advising her. But as you say, um, this is one hell of a big straw man. The art of politics is to set up a straw man that you can knock off with ease. Um, And this is this is not quite the same as what Johnson did where he knew he had, because he focus grouped an opinion poll all the time, he knew he had a combination of those voting Brexit in the south of England and the Red Wall, and those so fed up with the delays in implementing Brexit. He knew he had quite a big group of support. And if he framed it as all of them against the elites, in inverted commas, mm. um, even though he was part of an elite, as we all know, um, that was quite effective framing. And we know what followed. Uh, This, it seems to me, is an attempt to copy that and portray these elitists stuck in the past, you know, um, not bothered by growth, which, of course, is absurd. Who's against growth as such? But um, I don't think it's going to work. It's not it's not as effective a framing. No, I mean, the, the sort of the, you know, environmental campaigners are part of the uh anti-growth coalition aren't they and it's sort of you know the word that even the word conservative party seems to indicate that there's you know some element of um you know, conservation uh yeah in- yeah it, I, there was a very interesting article by william Hague this week who in the context of the liz trust era is beginning to sound like a sort of revolutionary marxist yeah um uh, who was who was arguing exactly that? You know, let's uh, it's a, it's a small C conservative, and indeed in some parts of their party, a big C conservative value to conserve. You know, the environment, but in her sort of view of growth, which is a very narrow one, uh, all, all is up for grabs, and she's already alienated famously the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, and you know these are Daily Telegraph readers. 
well, it's, it's, it's naive to say she's got to be careful. She has not been careful and is already, I think, trapped in a framing uh, which will be very difficult for her to escape from. I mean, as your piece says, this has been the shortest political honeymoon uh, that any that I can remember, certainly. I mean, who else has had such a bumpy ride right after becoming prime minister? Um, so there is no equivalent to this. You see, most people who become prime minister without having won a general election, and there are a surprisingly large number in that category of recent times, John Major, Gordon Brown, Theresa May, uh, Boris Johnson, and now Truss, um, most of them begin by looking at what's available, what space is available on the political stage, recognising that there isn't that much because they haven't won an election because Mm. quite a lot of their MPs would have voted for another candidate and adapted accordingly. I think in her case, um, she decided, I think she was intoxicated right away. There she was in number 10 with her people, advisors from the Taxpayers Alliance, advisors from the Institute of Economic Affairs, all headily concluding that their moment had come. And she didn't do or is incapable of doing that basic reading of the space available to her and where power lies. Now, Thatcher, her heroine, uh, was a near genius at that. She, She didn't make big, sweeping, radical moves until she knew she could do it, that the space was available. And before that had brought in people onto her front bench who she viewed with disdain, who didn't share her evangelical crusading uh, views, uh, but she knew she had to. And Truss hasn't done that. And uh, I think is already, as I said earlier, trapped as a result of her actions early on, purging her government of anyone connected with Rishi Sunak, then doing that crazy mini budget of unfunded. Mm tax cuts Uh, and you can't escape from it that it's happened and the consequences will be many yeah and i mean it is so self-inflicted as well isn't it i mean not only the obviously the markets made it clear what they thought of the the mini budget but also the political the internal political capital that is that is squandered when you you know, when you send some MPs out to defend a policy that you then you turn on in 24 hours and then the other MPs have been threatened with expulsion for, for saying things that become policy 24 hours later. I mean, she keeps on going on about we had to do the uh, energy uh, price uh, intervention. Sure, she did. And if you remember, that was the first statement she made in the House of Commons before the Queen died. And there was no market turmoil as a result of that. So it's nothing to do with that. She keeps on citing it. It is, um, y- you know, a complete misjudgment of how to handle power when you've inherited it in very contentious circumstances. You know, first of all, the removal of an existing prime minister who didn't want to go. Uh, Second, a fundamental economic debate with your main challenger, Sunak. Um, A a relatively narrow victory in which most Tory MPs voted for Sunak, not her. That was the context in which she inherited. And it required a degree of deft modesty as she moved towards her clearly declared goals, although how you implement them or what they would achieve is another matter. But instead, she rushed for it at the speed of sound as if she had no constraints anywhere, that she had become a mighty prime minister and she was going to behave like an impatient, mighty emperor, only to discover she's a leader of a party in a party-based parliamentary system. Um, and uh, has squandered the goodwill that is there for every prime minister. Gordon Brown, who hadn't won an election when he became prime minister, huge poll leads for the first mm-hmm. few months. Theresa May is such a big poll lead, she held an early election. Yeah, um, This is freakish. Uh, to be so unpopular so early on is without precedent. And um, it, it is all down to her, the decisions she has made. Yes, which are, which I think are are really an extension of her character and her desire to, well, to go big or go home, uh, which she has gone big, and I think she probably will be going home. I mean, the spin at the end of, of the conference, the Birmingham conference, is that Truss 
made a good speech that the you know support with the energy bills package is cutting through to grateful voters even though Truss initially opposed um helping all of that and and that you know the speech and the energy bills has sort of packed away this talk of bring back Boris and Rishi by Christmas is that just wishful thinking do you think is there is there any immediate danger to her uh her job as prime minister I don't think it's immediate but um there was as you know a lot of talk at the uh, conservative conference about whether she can stay the course for very long mm. uh, my view was the speech was poor and this, I, I write this as an admirer of uh, many speeches that i disagree with um i say it was poor because it was just really a, a reiteration of her sort of leadership contest uh, speeches and it, it kind of came across to me and of course there is a market for this but it's a relatively small market of a kind of right-wing accountant in a golf club bar after the yeah. fifth pint you know where uh, damn these taxes damn uh, bloody meddling everywhere it was her equivalent of that really Yes. Um, and it was, you know, this was on the day of rail strikes, you know, public services crumbling, uh, you know, climate change still being a big issue. And as you and I and, you know, new European readers agree, Brexit still being a huge issue. None of it addressed. Just this kind of, you know, tax cuts, tax cuts, burn all regulation as if this is a vision uh, that addresses all the worries that people have at the moment. So I don't think it was that good a speech. However, having removed one prime minister, and it takes a huge amount of political will to remove a prime minister, um, I don't think the will's there yet to do the same with her. But she is trapped in the sense that having announced these unfunded tax cuts and the markets went bonkers, uh, they then, her and uh, Kwarteng pretended that they had a plan uh, to deal with the unfunded tax cuts in the form of spending cuts. They mm. didn't have such a plan. Um, so then they were scurrying around finding spending cuts and uh, hinted at, you know, some of them. Then Tory MP said, no, no, that's wholly unacceptable. So what do they do? Not now announce big spending cuts, in which case the markets might hit them again, or go for it, in which case they won't get them through the House of Commons. And so you know, that, that I think is their fundamental dilemma, Truss and Kwarteng. Um, and it's not at all clear how they get through that particular hurdle. No, because, you know, they're, they're, they won't, they're not going to be allowed to borrow anymore. That's quite clear, isn't it? So if they're going to do these things, they are going to have to find spending cuts. Johnny Bloom's written about that uh, for us uh, in, in the same issue uh, that your piece appears in. And, and of course, you, you, you know, you're right, because the opposition from our own MPs is is growing. Most of our own MPs didn't vote for her anyway. Yeah. Many of them stayed away from the conference. And I'm, I'm wondering now, you know, how much, you know, will this government of radical ideas actually be able to get these radical ideas through the Commons? No. I, I I don't think it's at all clear that they, um, you know, their, their ideas about speeding up housing and so on, well, that's already been tried once and uh, MPs resisted it, Tory MPs. We know about their desire to uh, limit the increase to benefits and that there isn't a majority for that. And they've already had to renege on the 45p tax thing, pretending it was a distraction where it was absolutely totemic and what they were trying to do uh so uh fracking. i think struggle to get through and fracking not not a hope not a hope yeah. of, um it, it, it happening and so you know what it's so interesting when you get a group of people who uh have hung around in think tanks talking about things in the abstract faced with the joy of victory and then the reality of exerting power in the uk and finding suddenly that there are all these deeply unglamorous constraints. You cannot just be a crusading revolutionary and wave a wand and growth starts to happen. You know, and the constraints, it's unusual for a Tory prime minister to be so buffeted by the markets. It happened with John Major in 1992 and he never recovered. But the bar is usually, 
much higher for Labour prime ministers when it comes to the markets, but she's tested it and she's got that constraint and that will hover over her. Then she's mm. got these restive MPs. The media is a big player in all of this. Those papers who ardently worship Johnson began by worshipping her, but will they stay with her and the course they've been very nice about her speech but let's let's see i mean you know there's, there's lots going on. and of course the cabinet has been quite vocal as well um you know yes. this is somebody who has lost authority very quickly and she can't rely on charisma and a capacity to present to revive her fortunes so it's got to be a sense that she's got a grip of her agenda uh, and is pursuing it effectively and there's no real sign of that at the moment. And I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to use a phrase that I don't think I've ever used before, which, which is to say that Nadine Doris said something interesting the other day, <laughs> because yeah. she, she said the country didn't vote for this. They didn't vote for these plans. They vote, you know, yeah. they voted for another set of plans, which are, are you know, diametrically opposed to some of to some of this. Is that, is yeah. that a problem? Do you think? I think it's a huge problem. And in the end, if you remember, this is what uh, made Theresa May decide to call an early election. Yes. She had publicly said she wasn't going to call one, even though she was miles ahead in the polls. And she was an honest person. She meant it. But she kept on trying to do things uh, with her advisor, Nick Timothy, which were, was different to the Cameron Osborne uh, 2015 manifesto. And people kept on saying, you haven't got a mandate for this. Mm, yeah. And in the end, she said, right, I'm going to call an election to get my own mandate. Uh, now, Trust hasn't got that option when they're so far behind in the polls. Theresa May was 20 points ahead in the polls. Um, so that option isn't available, which means she only has one option, which is not to do some of the things that she has pledged to do, or else she's going to have more than Nadine Doris, uh, you know, after her on the Tory side. And But, but by not doing what she has pledged to do, she strips all sense of purpose and mission from her leadership. And mm. given that her leadership is all about missionary zeal, kind of, oh, yeah, we're going to go for it, and scrap 20 years of economic orthodoxy and all the other stuff. She can't do it. She is without purpose. So that has its own dangers. And yet I don't think she can do some of it because she hasn't got the mandate. Yeah, I mean, it, these are all huge dangers for her. The legitimacy yeah. thing, I think, is a is a is a massive thing. Yeah, um, my sense is that the, the that voters don't forget, and I think you you've, you've written about this as well in in the piece. Voter, the market crash. I mean, all right, it was a temporary market crash, wasn't it? And the pound is back to a you know it's terrible level that it's been uh, hovering <laughs> for, for, for yeah. quite a while, but. Do will voters forget about that? I, I I really think that people remember those things, don't they? They they do. When uh, see John Major had this honeymoon when he became prime minister because he handled the early years quite well. Yeah. Uh, but when the markets went for him and Britain was forced out of the exchange rate mechanism, the Tories were never ahead in the opinion polls again up to the ninety seven election where Labour won a landslide, and well into that era of Labour government so there are things that voters are in my view too forgiving about they were very forgiving about boris johnson's conduct during the mm. pandemic but there are some things that they don't forgive or forget and it's it's when there is a sense of economic chaos being triggered by government's actions directly and immediately in ways that affect a lot of them you know, I I'm anecdotally had a chat with someone really worried about mortgage payments just before uh, joining the podcast. And and so, yeah, it, I, I, I think it's not going to be forgotten. And, and, yeah. and so in a way, voters have already made a decision about it. And it's very hard when that happens to turn it round. Yes, I think I mean those are the, those are the key are key moments that stick with us, aren't they? You know, yeah. capping, capping hand to the IMF, Norman Lamont singing yeah. in the in, in the bath and the and the you know the, the 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 jokey letter that David Cameron carried around with him saying there's no money left. Um finally, I mean let's 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 be honest, it was this really it was one of the the spin is amazing, but it really was a shambolic party conference and it was capped off by a you know speech that was semi-competent at best 
I didn't think Keir Starmer's speech was was much more over semi competent, but it was a really slick party conference, uh, and you know Labour came out of it quite well. It seemed to come out of it quite well. There's some evidence that people are beginning to warm to the Labour Party as much as they're going cold on Liz Truss's Conservative Party. What what do Labour need to do now? Do they need to just shut up and 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 let uh, Liz Truss uh, and Quasi Kwarteng? drift or do they need to start intervening and saying this is what we're about? Um, I think they've got to do two things. First of all, they need to work around the clock now to make sure that they are part of this current narrative um, so that it's not just about the uh, incompetence of trust and her new government, but it's about how they would do things differently. That's where Cameron and Osborne were clever uh, when they were in opposition after the financial crash. Uh, They worked 24 hours a day. The the alternative they had was uh, uh, mythological nonsense, but it sounded very effective at the time. Um, And Labour have got to do that. And I think they do. I mean, in, in fairness to trust, she is ideological. Uh, She believes in a small state and that low taxes generate growth. And Labour cannot just counter that with technocratic competence. They have to say, all right, we believe in something else. We want growth too. So the debate is how you get it. And this is what our values are, which lead us to these policies to bring about growth. So in other words, you you do engage in a battle of ideas. The danger for Labour is that if the economy is recovering a bit, and it should be from the lowest depths it's about to hit uh, by 2024, Trust will say, look, I've won. I've won the whole debate. I was right. You know, Mm -hmm. so I think they need to engage on that level too and and, and they need it to be distinct and fresh and not just constantly brief. Uh, you know, that Keir Starmer is following Tony Blair between 94 and 97. We're in a different world. Um, And so there are challenges, but there's no doubt a big poll lead kind of feeds on itself in that suddenly people become more interested in them. The media pays more flattering attention to them. Uh, Businesses want to see them and be with them. And and then voters say, oh, yeah, they're an alternative government being taken seriously. That then can uh, solidify or increase poll leads. So, So they're in a potentially virtuous circle but we should never underestimate Labour's capacity to blow winning elections they hardly (laughs) ever do it so I think they've got a lot to do Uh, but they're in a scenario which um, is a dream one for an opposition party it really is Uh, Steve Richards always great to have you on the new European podcast Uh, other podcasts of course available Um, we should mention yours and your live show coming up yeah yeah thank you yeah my podcast is called the rock and roll politics podcast where we kind of try and delve deep each week on all the dramas political dramas yeah and the next live show at king's place it's every month the next one's october the 26th great okay uh to read steve richards on politics's shortest honeymoon pick up issue 311 of the new european it's at newsstands now newsstands that's in news agents i don't do we have newsstands anymore uh if you subscribe (laughs) Uh, you can get access to that and all of Steve Richards' pieces for The New European. Uh, to get a special deal for podcast listeners, subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Steve Richards, of course. So, Matt Withers, what stood out for you there in, in what Steve was saying and, and from his piece? Yeah, I mean, he touched briefly on um, comparisons with previous um, prime ministers who have come in mid-term, and he, he, he dwells on that uh, greater detail in his piece um, in the print edition online this week. And uh, he's always good, Steve, I think, on on taking the the longer term term view on these things. And when you look at Liz Truss and where she compares with people who've come in mid-term, um, she, she doesn't compare well at all because... When people come in in the middle of term, uh, it tends to not be in good circumstances. You know, mm. a prime minister has departed. Tony Blair, as ever, is the exception that proves the rule. But usually it's because a prime minister um, has gone in difficult circumstances. You look at somebody like John Major. He came in 
when um, Thatcher was uh, defenestrated. And as he, he writes here, though, he, he kept people who weren't necessarily um, his type of conservative um, within the tent. So you had, you know, Michael Portillo, who was um, very much an ardent Thatcherite within his cabinet. Um, Gordon Brown came in, in in slightly more beneficial circumstances, but even then he was very accommodating to um, supporters of Tony Blair. They were given prominent posts in his cabinet. If you remember that the the, the, uh, the phrase at the time was the GOAT, he had the, the government of all the talents um, and he, he brought in people who were, who were, you know, not, not necessarily um, of the, the, the Brownite um, tendency, but he did keep them in there because he realized he had to do that. And even Theresa May, although you'll remember she was quite um, harsh with George Osborne sacking him and, telling him that she needed to go and um, get to know the party better. And she also um, asked Michael Gove until realising it was much more sensible to have Michael Gove inside the tent, something that I suspect Liz Truss is going to learn um, very sharply learn it, yeah. Yeah, over the coming weeks uh, and months. But um, she did, you know, she sought accommodation with the Brexiteers by giving them top positions in her cabinet. You suspect that, um, that Theresa May... Um, probably, probably would have preferred to keep Boris Johnson and David Davis at, at arm's length. Realized that such was the makeup ideologically of the Conservative Party at that time that she needed to have them on board to succeed. Now, Liz Truss has taken completely the opposite tactic. L literally everybody who didn't support her is now outside of, of the cabinet, um, including some pretty big beasts. Um, it was reported that, that when she sacked Grant Shapps, she told him that he was a very effective Secretary of State um, and that he was the best communicator the party had. But because she didn't, uh, he didn't support her for the leadership, there was no room at the inn, was the exact quote. So she's taken completely different tact to her predecessors, have said, right, you people who don't support me, don't agree to my agenda, aren't part of the same ideology. There is absolutely no room in, in my ministerial team for you. Um, and she, I think she's going to learn some very difficult uh, historical lessons. Ellie, what, what do you think happens next for Liz Truss? Well, I mean, just on that, if, if we're calling Grant Schatz one of the greatest communicators we've got, <laughs> then I'm really quite worried going off his excellent um, and ironically unnecessary train advert about unnecessary train announcements. Um, but I don't know, I guess routine wise we start to see some sort of schedule um of like what a normal you know trust nine to five or whatever government sort of looks like back to back to parliament post-conference season pmqs um whatever they'll resemble um you know there's been lots of talk saying about christmas and the race to christmas is the big test and will she even make it there um i have to admit the odds aren't exactly in her favor i don't know if you guys saw where yesterday on Sky News, Sam Cokes was trying to get out of her if she trusted her chancellor, if she trusted Quasi Karteng, and she wouldn't. He, she asked her three times, and she would not say the words, you know, I trust my chancellor. You know, the first time she dodged it and sort of said, oh, well, what we're trying to do here, blah, blah, blah. And then he came back with, okay, well, listeners will hear that you literally have not answered the question, do you trust your chancellor? And then we had the same spiel again and again a third time, which is like, it's a pretty low bar when all you want is your prime minister to say that they have faith in their in their chancellor and they won't actually say it which doesn't install you know trust in in the rest of us um one headline today was saying you know will it be rishi for christmas or if we wanted rishi for christmas personally i'd like to say no thank you i think i've got some other things on my on my wish list yeah um, i mean it's bad enough with mrs brown's boys being on for <laughs> christmas never mind rishi for christmas no go on uh, well, I don't know if I'm a fan i have to admit i don't know if i want rishi or mrs brown's boys but there we go um but no, so yeah, and even okay, so accepting that if that is the case that trust goes and Rishi comes in or anyone else comes in or we have votes of no confidence, it does have to make you wonder how long this sort of Tory cycle, which I know we've been speaking a lot about in meetings this week of this sort of cycle of how long it will eventually go on for. Yeah, a little while less, uh, a little while uh, uh, still to go, I'm afraid to say, but surely, surely not much longer. And then what will we have to talk about? Vaguely competent uh, administration with Keir Starmer. How dull would that be? I think it 
quite welcome the dullness really uh shall we do the hall of shame uh which is where we put malignant ministers bogus backbenchers poisonous pundits other things that annoy us generally um start with Anne Widdicombe as we always do former Tory prisons minister former Brexit party MEP author of the world's worst column in the world's worst newspaper that's the Daily Express um Anne I think she's she's a bit upset this week um she writes the sound of knees crawling along the ground drowned out only by screeching u-turns has me reaching for the nearest sick bag this is a lesser government than a bunch of headless chickens running around in circles talking churchill but acting like the grand old duke of york the government says it has listened if so it obviously listens with its knees rather than its ears and brains the tory mps who put loyalty before popularity have had dirt thrown in their faces I don't know what you make of that, Matt and Ellie. I mean, there's a lot to unpack in there. It's <laughs> mainly about knees, really, isn't it? Um, can you have dirt thrown in your face if you're a headless chicken? I don't know. Do you just throw dirt at your disembodied chicken head on the ground? I have no idea. What's, what's your, what are your feelings about Anne Widdicombe? I just now have images of Anne, you know, surrounded by chickens throwing dirt at them, and I think that just shows what sort of political state we're all in. <laughs> The government is listening with its knees uh, and its cr- its knees are crawling along the ground. Has she got some kind of knee fetish, do you think, Matt? I mean, she uh, spectacular mixing of metaphors there. I, I don't know. I, I just don't understand why in the year 2022 Anne Widdicombe is still a thing. I don't know. It baffles me. Yes. Uh, also in the Hall of Shame um, is the Tory chair, Jake Berry. Mitch Ben wrote about him this week in The New European. This is was Jake Berry's advice to people worried about fuel bills. People know that when their bills arrive, they can either cut their consumption or go and get a higher salary with higher wages. Go out there and get that new job. That's the approach the government is taking. So if you're a single parent working part time, but still receiving universal credit, what you want to do is stop being a teaching assistant and just become the chief financial officer of GlaxoSmithKline. That's fine. Uh, Talking to people who live in alternative realities, alternate realities. uh, This was on CNN. I read this on CNN from an unnamed ally of Liz Truss. The problem with Liz and Quasi is that they're both very intelligent and they think six moves ahead of everyone else. They need to explain their actions more clearly and give people the time to understand what they're trying to do. So it's actually that they're doing really well, uh, Ellie and Matt. Uh, And it's you, me, the financial markets, vast majority of the electorate, everybody else in Europe and the Democrats in America who all think they're doing badly. Uh, We only think they're doing badly because we're all thick. Um, Ellie, who are you putting in the Hall of Shame this week? So, yeah, while I take a break from being, you know, six paces behind Liz and Quasi Cartain. Yes. Um, so first up for me this week is Lee Anderson, the MP for Ashfield, who said in a House of Commons debate back in May that there's not this massive use of food banks in this country. People who do use them take the mick and should learn to budget better and cook properly. Um, and he's been at it again. Uh, at the conference this week, he, when asked about Liz Truss and her chancellor's U-turn and humiliating ditching of their hugely controversial and expensive policy of axing the 45p income tax ban for high earners, he said that it wasn't actually a U-turn, but more of a change of direction. Um, so just a simple, <laughs> temporary, 180 degree course correction. You see, we've got it all wrong again. Um the- did you see his brilliant interview in Birmingham as well? I mean, he's he's a horror, isn't he, Lee Anderson? And he 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 basically said, um, you know, I think the interviewer said something like, "Well, have you been enjoying yourself?" And he said, um, he said, "Yes, it's been a great conference." Um, you know, I don't, we don't, it's nice listening to, to proper people and not listening to people like you from the, I can't remember what phrase he used. It wasn't quite the scum media, but it was something nasty about the media. And he said, what, what you've got to remember is that Theresa May is a, a great prime minister in the making. And the, the, the journalist had to say, um, well, it's, her name is Liz Truss, who's the Prime Minister, to which Lee Anderson went, oh, thank you very much. So one minute the scum media and then the next minute uh, the media that's helping me out. Uh, who else did you, uh, who else have you got a bee in your bonnet with about Ellie? A bee in my bonnet. Uh, yes, yeah, so next up, 
Next up is Felicity Baker, the Somerset uh, Tory activist. She was saying at the conference that young people need to be more realistic about the dream of home ownership. Um, as the podcast resident Gen Zer, I'd like to thank her for that little ray of sunshine. I'll think about it all weekend. Um, she goes on to say that in places like Italy, for example, people don't actually aspire to own their own home and are quite happy to spend their lives renting. I mean, stats show that home ownership actually increased in Italy to 75% in 2020. But anyway, um, she continued to say that we only ever hear about the people who need stuff. And she was then making the case for the squeezed middle. Um, I don't know. Maybe we should just keep talking about those people who are fine and don't need help or anything. But after the summer, I'm kind of fed up about hearing of Rishi Sunak. So maybe we should just not take that advice. Incredible. That is amazing. Matt, what about bees in your book? Why would you have a bee? I mean, when was the last time anyone had a bonnet? And, <laughs> and then did, how were bees attracted to bonnets in the first place? Yeah, I don't know what the providence of that is. Maybe we can uh, go through that at length next week. Yes, <laughs> I'd like a big feature on that. Mm, looking forward to that. Yes. Um, just one for me, but this week I'm inducting Sherelle Jacobs, who, uh, if you're fortunate enough not to have heard of, is one of the many crackpot Tufton Street libertarian columnists, the Daily Telegraph foisters on its readers, despite Telegraph readers still being predominantly retired colonels in Surrey who just want the cricket results and titillating tales of vicars running off with their parishioners. At um, 10.49 on Wednesday, just before Liz Truss's speech, uh, Sherelle Jacobs tweeted glumly, feels like Liz Truss is the new Theresa May. The markets are the equivalent of the EU, unwilling to countenance her disruptive dash for growth plan, nor can she get a watered-down version of her budget with major spending cuts to appease the markets past her MPs, uh, which is obviously bonkers, the equivalent of the EU thing. Because um, markets hate growth, well known that... Um, Markets loathe growth. But then at 11.43 a.m. on Wednesday, just after Liz Truss's speech, she tweeted ecstatically, Liz Truss is on fire. She eviscerates the anti-growth coalition. This is the PM in her element. Fire emoji. Uh, <laughs> so easily turned around that Sherelle Jacobs is a very silly person from a very silly newspaper, and that's why she's going into the Hall of Shame. Brilliant. I wonder who had a word with Sherelle. Uh, Jacobs, uh, consigned to the loneliest and gloomiest cloister in the Hall of Shame this week, though, is Suella Braverman, uh, or Braverman. Uh, let's hear what she had to say about uh, uh, what she had to say about her ambitions uh, at a Conservative Party fringe event this week. Having a, a front page of the Telegraph yeah. with a flight, a plane taking off to Rwanda—that's my dream, and that's her dream. Uh, it's not quite this dream, is it? I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. That was the New European Podcast with Eleanor Longman-Rood, Matt Withers and Steve Anglesey. Thank you to you all for listening. Thanks to Steve Richards and thanks to our producer, who is John Dakin. Uh, a reminder of our special offer for new subscribers go to theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast and you can join us for a pound a week for digital, two pounds a week for print and digital. That's theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Uh, please subscribe if you don't want to miss an episode of this podcast and give us lovely reviews, nice ratings where you can. You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow at the New European uh, on Elon Musk's Twitter, and you can follow me on Elon Musk's Twitter, if you like, at Sanglesey. Uh, until the next time we meet, it's goodbye from Eleanor Longman Road. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from birthday boy and reader, Matt Withers. Farewell. And for me, it is so long, snowflakes.